I ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. We are on the final chapter of Joshua. ask that you uh, pray with me as we prepare to receive the word. Father, I thank you that we can hear your word, that we can study your word, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. Father, as we approach the text this morning, I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the wondrous and amazing things that you have placed in there for us. Lord, I, I ask that we would truly taste and see that you are good as we approach the text this morning. Lord, help us to not be stiff-necked, help us to not be hard-hearted, but to be truly ready to receive what you would have us hear from your word. Lord, what a comfort your word can be in the strengthening when we are walking against you and can break us. So, Father, I thank you for your word and thank you for these people who have gathered here this morning. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. So last week, we had the State of the Union Address. And so regardless of your political position, we recognize the significance of it, don't we? A leader stands up and says, this is where we are, this is where we are going, and we have a similar State of the Union Address here in our text this morning. Only it is the ending of an era. It is the closing of a time period. It is the grand finale, a final speech on where we were, where we are going, and where we will go or should go. And Joshua knows that with his death, an important decision must be made. You see, Joshua recognizes that we are in a worship war. We are in a war for worship. We all worship something, but the question is, who are we going to exalt? God or self? Joshua's speech is quite a powerful statement to us today. We face a, a similar juncture in our lives, in our country even. Who will we serve? The question I want to be rolling around in your head this morning is, who will you serve? Who are you going to serve? There's no middle way. It is all or nothing. All or nothing. And we can divide our passage this morning into three parts. We have a covenant history, a covenant renewal, and a covenant kept. A lot of covenant language here in our passage. And we're going to start with this covenant history. Joshua begins to retell this epic narrative of how God takes a people from false worship and brings them into a relationship with the one true God. And not to mention this only, but the location is perfect. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you haven't opened it already. But Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. You may not recognize that word immediately, but if you do a little research, you'll, you'll recognize the location, and we'll talk about it as we move forward. He summoned Israel's elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. The setting is this. You came from a people who worshipped false gods. Abraham and his parents, his family, his ancestry were false god worshippers. Abraham was not a perfect vessel. He did not have this perfect upbringing. He did not go to all the right religious schools. He came from a pagan family. And this is a a truly powerful narrative because it has folds of mystery of God's plan. As we read this, I want you to say, man, what would it be like to be the people in in this story? What would it feel like as we review this to recognize that there are several aspects of how God works in history? First, we see that it is slow. God's mystery, God's providence is sometimes very slow, is it not? Can I get an amen? It's sometimes slow, right? Sometimes it takes a while. Abraham, growing up in a pagan home, you know how long he waited for a child? 25 years of waiting right after the Lord promised. So the Lord promised, and then he waited 25. So he was about 75. So he had been wanting a child for a long time, him and his wife. And then the last little bit, God says, I will give you a child. And what happens? He waits 25 years. Some of y'all can't even wait a week for the next episode of a show you like, right? We had 25 years of waiting with many trials, many challenges. In fact, he even takes matters into his own hands and tries to manipulate the situation to get the promised child. So imagine as you are looking at how God works, you see that it takes a while. It is slow. As you look at verse 3, he begins to tell this narrative. He says, but I took, speaking of God, I took your father Abraham from the region beyond the Euphrates River, led him throughout the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants. I gave him Isaac. Does that not sound like an odd sentence to you? Listen to this sentence with me. Because when I was reading this, I was like, okay. I have multiplied his descendants. I gave him Isaac. That doesn't sound like a multiple. That sounds like a one. Okay. 25 years and you receive one. All right. Verse four. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave the hill country of Seir to Esau as a possession. Man, this begins to lead into hardship because we first see that he gives him Isaac. Then he gives him Jacob and Esau. And we all know the story of Jacob and Esau. But what's so funny to me, or not funny, but interesting, is that in verse 4, Esau got his possession. But we don't see a possession for Jacob. Esau received his inheritance right away. But what happens to the people of Israel? Trials. They're enslaved in Egypt eventually. Verse 4 continues, Jacob and his sons, however, went down to Egypt. Esau received the inheritance. I don't know about you, but Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Man, it sounds like Jacob got the short end of the stick here because Esau received his inheritance immediately. So God's ways, his mysterious providence is one, very slow and also hard. 
because they were eventually enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Verse 5, we begin to see the power of God and His providence. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I defeated Egypt by what I did within it. And afterward, I brought you out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, you reached the Red Sea. Think about this for a minute. They didn't really know where they were going, and they were brought to the Red Sea. The Lord put them into an L-shaped ambush. The Lord moved them into a position where they will be easily destroyed. In fact, the Egyptians recognized the fact being wise militarily, and they capitalized on it. We see as it goes forward. The Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen as far as the sea. Your ancestors cried out to the Lord. So he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea over them, engulfing them. Your own eyes saw what I did to Egypt. After that, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Not a short time, a long time. So we see the providence of God. First, it works slow. Sometimes it's much slower than we would like. When God promises something, He doesn't automatically give us it exactly the way we want it or right away. And sometimes it's through hardship. In fact, most of the time, it is through hardship. We see the Lord's power because He frees the ancestors from Egypt. And as we think about how terrorizing it would feel and how hopeless you would feel at the end of your rope, at the back of the sea, the sea is to your back. You have nothing to fight against chariots. You are not equipped militarily. Your resupply has not come in. And you are there waiting for destruction by the biggest, strongest army of the land. An easy target. Yet they cry out. And we see in verse 8 through 12, reminders of God's protection. The remind, you have the remainders, excuse me, you have the reminders of the Amorites. Verse 8 says, Later, I brought you out to the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. They fought against you, but I handed them over to you. You possessed their land, and I annihilated them before you. Then we have this prophet Balaam that is mentioned as we continue to move forward. Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he repeatedly blessed you, and I rescued you from him. The enemies of the people of God sought to curse them with a prophet. Yet the reality is this, that that did not go forward. In fact, it became a blessing. If you remember the whole story, God even used a donkey to interrupt this man's attempt. The protection of the Lord. And, and who could forget Jericho? As you go forward, we see verse 11. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. A fortified position, a bunch of slaves who had been freed, who had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, attacking a fortified position. That sounds like straight foolishness from a military perspective, does it not? Yet, we see that they crossed the Jordan, came to Jericho. Jericho's citizens, as well as the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hethites, Girgashites, Hivites and Jebusites, which I like to summarize as, fought against you, 
but I handed them over to you. All the enemies of the people of God were destroyed. But not only that, in verse 12, he says, I sent hornets ahead of you, and they drove out the two Amorite kings before you. It was not by your sword or bow. I gave you a land you did not labor for. So we see protection. The Lord protects His people. Joshua is recognizing he is about to die, and he's giving his final speech. And so he says, listen, the ways of the Lord are slow. The ways of the Lord are through hardship. The ways of the Lord is for your protection, and the ways of the Lord are your provision. That's what we see in verse 13. I gave you a land you did not labor for, and cities you did not build. Through, though you lived in them, you are eating from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. What a, an amazing provision the Lord provided for the people of Israel. So God is faithful. That's the message of Joshua. That God and His words are faithful. There are no failing words in the economy of God. And I think if we examine the, exper if we examine the experience of the people of Israel, we see how mysterious they must have seemed in the moment. God, what are you doing? Why are we wandering around for 40 years? Why are you having us attack a fortified city by walking around it blowing some trumpets? Lord, what are you doing here? Why is it taking 25 years for me to have one child? I'm not getting any younger. Many of you probably have similar questions in your own mind. I think if we're honest, we might say that we have questions about how long it takes, don't we? How hard is it? Or, how, or maybe we ask the question, is God powerful enough? Is He powerful enough to change? Will He protect me? Will He provide for me? Joshua, in his retelling of covenant history, says yes. The answer to those questions is yes. Yes, God works on His time. Yes, it can be hard. Yes, God is powerful enough. Yes, He will protect by never leaving or forsaking us in Christ Jesus. Yes, He will provide. He gives us our daily bread. All of these promises are yes and amen in Christ for us who belong to Christ. I don't know about you, when I question God in my own heart, I look to His past faithfulness. Just like when you and your spouse have a disagreement, nobody in this room has ever had a disagreement with their spouse. We don't need to call it arguments, we just call them disagreements, right? And you look back and, and your wedding vows are confirmation that yes, that person really does love me. Because sometimes when you have a disagreement, you may question, does this person love me? Man, we're not in love anymore. But there's a commitment that was made, and that's what pushes us forward to continue to treat each other as we should. We're actually married after all. Or this might be more of a military thing, but sometimes I have these weird dreams where I have to go and do PT in the morning, and um, I imagine that I'm late for PT, for first formation, and I wake up and I start like sweating because I'm like, oh no, I got to get to formation. The reality is I can't get to Fort Hood in time. Right from here. And so sometimes, just for my own well being, I go into my safe and I pull out my DD 214, my discharge papers, and I look at them just to make sure that I am no longer under the authority of the government. Right? So when I have my doubts, I have to look to Christ. When you are enslaved by sin, you need to look at the cross of Christ. God's timing is perfect. 
His presence is with me in hardship. His power is unending. His protection is precise and His provision is sufficient for every struggle He brings me through. Joshua, following a typical covenantal formula, now moves to the covenant renewal ceremony. So Joshua has built up and and done what a regular covenant meeting does. He has given us a history of the relationship between God and His people. He says, this is what God is like. This is how He has treated us. Now we have a a moment of renewal. And so verses 14 through 28 is really a ceremony. It's a back and forth between Joshua and the people. And he opens up with this powerful statement. And then he goes back and forth with questions for the people. So first, in verse 14, he asks the question, who will you choose? 14 through 15, who will you choose? So look at verse 14 with me. It says, therefore... And if you have been around Sierra Vista Baptist Church for any amount of time and you see the word therefore, you know that I'm going to ask you the question, what is it? Therefore. All right, therefore, because of God's faithfulness, fear the Lord and worship Him with sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods of your your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today which will you worship, the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. That sounds like a really great plaque to put in your house, right? As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. But it's kind of funny because when we read this, we think, oh, choose God or choose other gods, right? But that's not what Joshua is saying here. Joshua is saying, if you don't choose God, the living God, the true God, Yahweh, as we have been translating this passage, if you don't choose Him, you are going to worship another God. He says you are going to choose between the old gods or the new gods. Joshua is saying that worship is a war. We are half-hearted creatures, easily drawn to other gods, to idols, and really ultimately our own desires. Joshua, knowing that he will die soon, wants to strengthen the Israelites and point them to right worship. And there are four commands in this passage. The first one is fear the Lord. The first thing in verse 14 says, fear the Lord. That's the first step. You must fear the Lord. Fear the Lord like you would fear someone who is more powerful than you because he is you must worship him you must give him the worship he deserves third he says you must get rid of false gods get rid of these false gods and then again he says worship the lord so this is what we must do we must fear the lord we must worship him we need to get rid of false gods and once again return and worship the Lord. We have our famous verse 15, and I think, like I said earlier, there is some misunderstanding. So let's take a minute to really look carefully at verse 15. So verse 15 says, But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, if it doesn't please you to worship the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, if it Isaac and Jacob. If it doesn't please you to worship that God, the one who brought you out of slavery and hardship, 
you're going to become in bondage to other gods. He says, you have these two options before you in verse 15. He says, you can worship the ones your ancestors did over by Iraq on the other side of the Euphrates River. Or you could worship the gods of the Amorites, those that, are, that were in the land before you. You know, I find this same principle in the church today, don't we? You ever try to change something in a church? We've never done it that way, or we've always done it that way. Sometimes that could be that we are worshiping the God of our ancestors. That pragmatism, that realism, that, that traditionalism, or that conservatism. We want to not change that thing. Or maybe we want to follow the gods of the flashly, flashy new liberalism. right? Maybe we want to have a new God to pursue. A new idol. Something new that we haven't worshipped before. But we all worship something, don't we? You know what's funny is that the biggest illustration of worship is going to happen this afternoon. The biggest worship service in the entire United States is going to happen today. We have our rituals. We have our patterns. We have our sacraments. Wings and pizza and beer, right? There are all these things that we come and there's a baptism of Gatorade at the end, right? There's this entire worship service dedicated this afternoon to the gods of the people. So do we, we have to ask the question, who do we worship? And the people respond. Man, I, I love their response. Verse 16, the people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. They may be even a little affronted that Joshua would ask or say such a thing. Verse 17, for the Lord our God brought us and our ancestors out of the land of Egypt out of the place of slavery and perform these great signs before our eyes. He has protected us along the way. We went and among all the peoples whose land we traveled through. Verse 18, the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because he is our God. Man, good job, people of Israel. Great response. Man, that's just what we wanted to hear. But Joshua is kind of a little mean here. He derails it. Look at verse 19 through 20. But Joshua told the people, you will not be able to worship the Lord. Wait, wait, Josh, what are we doing here? We got the people where we want them. They want to worship the Lord. What is he doing? Let's continue. He says, because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. Okay, Joshua, this is not a good evangelism strategy. This is not quite what we would expect from this. And then we have the people responding in verse 21. They say, no! The people answered Joshua, we will worship the Lord. They recommit, they reconfirm. Verse 22, Joshua then told the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you yourselves have chosen to worship the Lord. You are witnesses against yourselves. 
That is a heavy indictment. You have no excuse when you turn from the living God. And then they reply, we are witnesses. I can't help but hear the echoes of the whole cross thing, right? When they say, give us Barabbas. And he said, let, the, let, the, let it be on ours, we're witnesses, you know, and uh, we see this, this echo here. 23, Joshua demands something. He says, then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. If you have made that volitional commitment, then get rid of those gods. The ones you are hiding in your tent and worshiping under, um, under the bed sheets. The people then respond. So the people said to Joshua, We will worship the Lord our God and obey Him. Verse 25, we have this new statement that we're going to move into after I talk a little bit about Shechem. So there in the, the land of Shechem on 25, it says, On that day Joshua made a covenant for the people at Shechem and established a statute and ordinance for them. So what is this, this, this Shechem? Does anybody remember where this is or what this is? I think I hear, I hear the wheels turning in some of our gears, right? Shechem, the covenant here, is renewed in the sight of the Lord where the Lord told Abraham that his seed would inherit Canaan. In uh, Genesis chapter 12, 6 through 7, we see the Lord promising to Abraham, he said, your seed will inherit the land. That's what he told them at Shechem. 600 years later, here they are. That's why this covenant ceremony is so important. It kind of gives me goosebumps a little bit that of all the places, this is where they do the covenant renewal ceremony. The Lord has kept his promise. What is so startling to me is that Joshua does not treat Yahweh, God, as lightly as some people do today. He says, will you serve God only. And they say yes. And Joshua says, nope, you're not going to be able to do it because he is holy. He is jealous and will not share his glory with other gods. This does not seem like the winning evangelism strategy. You heard me say that earlier. Imagine if you knocked on your neighbor's door. I want you to put yourselves in Joshua's shoes. You go to your neighbor, you knock on his door, you share the gospel and say, would you like to follow Jesus? after you have given him a clear gospel presentation. You ask him, will you make him your Lord? And your neighbor says, yes, I would love to follow Jesus. And then you respond like Joshua. You will not be able to. You can't worship the Lord because he is a holy God and he's a jealous God. Then you slam the door and you run away, right? Some of the folks that, that run around teaching evangelism would like to pull Joshua aside and, and teach him a better way, a more winsome way, a smoother way. Get him in the door first. Hug him a little bit. But we see Jesus saying the sim a similar thing, don't we? Luke 18, 18-23, he says this. We have this, this depiction of how Jesus handled something similar. And a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a reasonable question. I think we should be ready to answer that. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, I have done all these things. I've kept them from my youth. Look how good I'm doing. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. All or nothing. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, that's not a, a winning evangelism. That man came to you to get saved. Those same evangelism teachers would come and grab Jesus and, and say, you had that rich man hooked. You had him on the hook. He was ready to come to you for eternal life. But you let the fish go. But we see that God's ways are different than our ways. God does not do easy believism. Total repentance is what it takes. Complete repentance is what it takes. Nothing can be more attractive to you than God Himself. It is... Nothing can be more attractive to you than God Himself. It's not what God can give you. It is who God is that you must crave. This is not a selling of fire insurance. This is not a say this prayer and you don't have to worry about anything type of repentance. It's not what God can give you. It's who God is. It requires a changed heart. You must be regenerated, which is the cause of these new desires. You must be converted by faith in Jesus Christ who took your sins upon Himself in our place, facing the wrath of God. And He takes our sins far, far away. This leads us to no longer be satisfied to the false gods of our time, but a hunger and thirst for God, leading us to reject these lesser gods, which leads to a legacy of a covenant kept. As the book of Joshua wraps up, we have a threefold burial. We have a threefold funeral. We should not miss the legacy of a covenant kept. In verses 29 through 33, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and finish up 25, 26, just so that we're staying on track here. 26, Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He also took a large stone, set it up there under the oak at the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, you see this stone, it will be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words that the Lord said to us, and it will be a witness against you so that you will not deny your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. And then we begin with this covenant kept. After these things, the Lord's servant Joshua, son of nine, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the, his allotted territory at Timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua and who had experienced all the works the Lord had done for Israel. Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the parcel of land Jacob had purchased from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father for a hundred pieces of silver. It was an inheritance for Joseph's descendants. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at, Gib at Gibeah, which had been his, to his son Phinehas, had been given to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. Each person is significant to the Israelites, and the loss of Joshua and Eleazar shows an end to the military and religious leadership 
after the taking of the promised land. First, Joshua, he died, and we see his legacy. His legacy is that of right or proper worship. And the people followed him in obedience to that worship. Then, as we look at his legacy, some of the actions that Joshua has taken, if we go back and we read through Joshua again, Joshua made some pretty brutal decisions. He had some, some stoning of people that rebelled against the Lord. He had some serious uh, bloody action, violent action. Uh, he had to take out some very strict verdicts on people who rebelled against God. But by his care, his shepherding of Israel, it resulted in true worship of the one true God. We have Joseph's bones mentioned here. He was buried at, at Shechem. Once again, that reminder of the promises of the land for Jacob's seed. And then Eleazar, you remember that this is Aaron's son. He's the, the priest that was kind of the high priest of the time, and he has now died. He's buried. If you've ever experienced the loss of a beloved pastor or a loved leader, you can imagine how this moment felt. What is it like to lose the religious leader that had led the people of Israel into a great victory and a conquest? He's gone now. So where do we go from here is the question that many of them should be asking. And as, as Christians, as we read and, and look at this Old Testament stuff, we may have in our mind, well, okay, that's Old Testament. What does it have to do with me? I don't know if that's something that you're thinking about. Like, okay, Joseph's bones, cool, great story. What does this do for me? <clears throat> the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, they point to Christ. In many ways, I think we see that Jesus Christ fulfills the promises and commitments in those covenants. And then we see that God has promised something better. Jeremiah 31, 31-34 says this, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's decoration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, this is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And we have the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Luke. He says this, But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. So it's true that the new covenant is better than the old, not only because it offers lasting, perfect, heavenly forgiveness of sins, through the obedience of another. So the new covenant is good and better because one, it offers permanent forgiveness of sins that the old covenant didn't promise. And that obedience of another is Jesus Christ. He lived perfectly. He kept it. He did what you and I could not do. You and I, we would say the same things as the people of Israel in this passage of Joshua, and we would go out and we would make a mistake immediately. And we'd have to go through the whole rigmarole of Old Testament forgiveness and atonement. But as believers, as Christians, we can trust fully 
on Christ. And so no matter how committed you are, and no matter how committed I am, we are going to fail. You can be like the people here and say, I commit. I am fully committed. The reality is that you are going to fail. No matter how many resolutions we make, we will not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then we will not obey Him perfectly. It is only because Jesus kept these things perfectly. He did what we could not do. We are told that it is by faith in Jesus resting on His finished work. The Gospel is given freely, and the only response appropriate is to stretch out our open and empty hands to receive that gift. In Jesus' early ministry, His call was to repent and believe the Gospel. A believer in Jesus has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, placed their trust in Jesus alone, and is not only forgiven, but now enabled out of grateful obedience, but more than that, enabled by God's power to walk in His statutes. We have what the the Israelites never had. As new covenant people, if you are in Christ, we are able to keep the law of the Lord. We are able to please the law. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. And listen to this. This is where it's important. And cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinance. Obedience in the Christian life is born from being united with Jesus Christ. That's the way we obey. It's not through your own power. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You cannot commit like the Israelites did and actually keep the law. We can't do it. You can't do it. No matter what your good intentions are in this moment. Romans 5, 1-2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we started and we boast in hope of the glory of God. So we cannot forget the old covenant commands and its instructions. In each covenant relationship, we see that God is faithful to his people. So friends, as we finish here, Joshua has laid down the mantle of leadership. He's leaving a personal legacy of faithfulness. He has strengthened the people and had them recommit to the Lord God. He lived a a life that displayed that because of God's faithfulness, we must be faithful. And he asks us the question, who will we serve? Will it be all or nothing? Friends, what a journey we have had. Our congregation has taken three seasons And we have made it through all of Joshua. I don't know if you realize what a great accomplishment we have just had. Every verse of Joshua has been read. Every city has been read, as Eliza reminded me at Awana a few weeks back. Every name is mentioned. And the continuous theme is that God is faithful. And no words promises have failed and this leads us to respond our final song as justin comes forward is all i have is christ and i want you to consider the words of this song the final verse 
says this, Now, Lord, I would be Yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow Your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way that You choose and let my song forever be my only boast is You. Let us pray to this covenant-keeping God. Father, we as New Covenant people recognize how indebted we are to Jesus Christ, the covenant Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Father, as we approach our time of response, I pray that we respond in obedience to You, that we respond in joy, that we taste and see how good the Lord is to us, His people. That even though we question the speed of your response, even though we wonder about protection, even though we are worried about provision, we know that you are a God who takes care of his people. We've seen it from the Old Testament into the New and today. Lord, you are faithful and we long to be obedient to you. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.